Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to be addressed by you through your holy word. As you speak to us now, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Make us ready and willing to trust you in all things and to respond in humble obedience as your faithful servants. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You'll find this in page 793 of the Pew Bibles. And just for a little added context, I'll begin reading uh, on, uh, back in, in verse, verse 12. So Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. This week I finished a reread of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. One of the themes of these books is that looks can be deceiving. The small hobbits are a people of noble heart, and though they are not usually given to adventures, they become entangled in the great events of their time and end up becoming the greatest of heroes. Zechariah's vision also makes us think of Tolkien's dwarves. Like the hobbits, they are also a race short of stature, but of great strength and mighty in their ability to craft things of exceeding Beauty. Looks can be deceiving. God can accomplish mighty things through unexpected means. In this vision, it is not mighty warriors who defeat 
the horns of the great nations, rather for humble craftsmen. Well, consider the meaning of this as we look at Zechariah's vision this morning. This is the shortest of Zechariah's visions, and though it is brief, it is not without an important message, both for Zechariah's day and for us this morning. It teaches us that God works in surprising ways. It calls us to focus on the work that God has called us to do, to focus on faithfulness in our calling, humble though it might be. Though our enemies may appear to be strong and mighty, God is our deliverer. And he is stronger than all who oppose us. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. So we'll look at our passage in two parts. First looking at the four horns, then at the four craftsmen, and then we'll consider a few points of application this morning. But before we begin with Zechariah's second vision, I do want to refresh your memory a little Regarding what we saw last week, Zechariah saw a vision of God's horsemen who were patrolling the entire earth. They found that the nations of the earth were at rest, while God's people had no rest. The rider on the red horse, the angel of the Lord, lamented the situation, crying out, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry these 70 years. Then the Lord responded with gracious and comforting words, saying that he had already returned to Jerusalem with mercy, that the temple would soon be rebuilt in the city. The whole city would then be rebuilt, and he would cause his cities to again overflow with prosperity. We also saw a great contrast God was exceedingly jealous with love for his people, but exceedingly angry with the nations who were resting at their ease. In that first vision, we don't see what the result of this exceeding anger will be. And now that is revealed here in the second vision. So now let's look at the second vision, reading again, verses 18 and 19. And I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The first words of verse 18 say that Zechariah, he lifts his eyes up, perhaps from pondering those gracious and comforting words of the angel. And this launches him into this second of the night visions. And immediately he sees these four horns. In an agricultural society, horns were found on many different animals, and they were used for both attack and defense. Think of the mighty horns of a bull. Or think of two mountain goats ramming together with a crack that echoes across the mountains. And so horns were associated with strength and power, especially the might of kings and their armies. When Zechariah asked the angel, what are these? The angel identifies them as the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The scattering was a fulfillment of God's covenant curses threatened for disobedience in Leviticus 26.33. 
treads. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. And that had been fulfilled. This term to scatter, it's used elsewhere in the scriptures to refer to the scattering of a flock of sheep or goats. And so it is appropriately used of the scattering of God's people as they were cast out of the promised land into exile. And here the angel speaks of the scattering of both Israel and Judah, both the northern kingdom of Israel, which was first taken into exile by Assyria in 722 BC, and then later Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into exile by Babylon in three waves, starting in 605 BC, and then culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. On the exile, they were not only not only were the people removed from the land, but they were scattered throughout both Assyria and Babylon, with the northern tribes never to be, never to return. And even though the southern tribes had now returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding territory of Judah, many had not come back. Many still remained scattered throughout the lands of their exile. And so you can think of the book of Esther, It's written about Jews who are still living in the Persian capital of Susa about 50 years after Zechariah's day. They were still scattered. They were still living far away. And so, in verse 21, we are told, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. In other words, the result of this scattering, of this exile, was that Judah was humiliated. So the people continually hung their heads in shame. While none of the Jews could raise their heads, we are also told in verse 21 that the nations raise their horns. To raise one's horn is is symbolic of of victory, of exaltation. It can even be a sign of pride and of boasting. Verse 21 also clarifies that these are the horns of the nations. They represent nations like Assyria, which conquered Israel, and Babylon, which took Judah into exile, although Babylon itself has now been conquered and succeeded by the Persians. This imagery of horns representing nation also also features prominently in the visions of Daniel, which we've been studying in our evening series. In Daniel chapter 7, he sees four beasts, and the fourth beast is the most terrifying. At first, Daniel sees it with ten horns, but then another, a little horn, comes up among them. And this little horn, he exalts himself, he lifts himself up, he boasts great things, and he persecutes God's people. And then in the next vision, Daniel's vision in chapter 8, there are two great beasts, a ram and a goat, and both of them have mighty horns. Now the bottom line, the reason I mention all this, is that in all these visions, these animal horns represent the power and the might of the various kings and the nations which they represent. And by wielding their horns, these ungodly kings scatter and oppress God's people. And coming back to Zechariah's vision, we now need to ask, can we identify these four horns? What do they represent specifically? 
Since there were not four distinct nations that brought God's people into exile, the four horns cannot symbolize four specific nations. However, the number four in Scripture is often used to refer to the four points of the compass or the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Therefore, we can conclude that the four horns represent all the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. All the nations that we saw last time, they are currently resting at their ease. But with them, the Lord is exceedingly angry. Let's see what happens next in verse 20. The Lord, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. The number of the craftsmen clearly corresponds to the number of the horns. There are four of each. Craftsmen is a general term. It can refer to workers in wood, in stone, or in metal. That is, carpenters, stonemasons, or blacksmiths. A craftsman can be one who fashions idols, one who fashions weapons for war, or even one who is building the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord. We're not told explicitly what kind of craftsmen these were or what they were building. I'll give an interpretation based on the context in a moment. Let's continue in verse 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So here the angel tells Zechariah that the the craftsmen, they had come to terrify the horns, to cast them down. The Hebrew word for terrify is used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of scaring off animals, which is appropriate when speaking here of animal horns. There's also a play on words here in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for craftsman, charash, sounds like the Hebrew word for terrify, charad. So you have charash and charad, two very similar sounding words, just the difference of one letter. There's also poetic irony to how the craftsmen will throw down the horns of the nations who lifted themselves up. Those who lift themselves up will be cast down. It reminds us of the common proverb in Scripture. Those who exalt themselves will be humble. The humble will be exalted. We see this same theme in Psalm 75, which we read earlier. First, the psalmist writes in verses 4 and 5, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Then the final verse of the psalm, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. The horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And so we see in the vision, the craftsmen terrify and cast down the horns of the nations effectively nullifying their power. Now we must ask the same question of the craftsmen that we asked of the horns. Who are these four craftsmen? Who do these figures represent? Can we identify them? Some picture the craftsmen as bulky blacksmiths with bulging biceps, wielding large hammers to go out and destroy Israel's enemies. It's almost like Gimli the dwarf, wielding his axe in battle, slaying the orcs of Mordor. 
But many interpreters are content to leave the question of the identity of the craftsman unanswered. For there is no answer explicitly given in the text. But I do think, I think we can give a reliable answer. For the answer is all around in the context. For what was the great construction project before God's people during this time? What was God's promise given to his people just a few verses before? God said that his temple would be rebuilt. And the building of the temple required craftsmen. As I mentioned before, craftsmen can refer to those who build God's tabernacle or temple. Two of the greatest craftsmen in Israel's history are Bezalel and Aholiab who were filled with the Spirit of the Lord to grant them skill for building the tabernacle. Later, Hiram assisted Solomon as his skilled craftsman in building the temple. And now God was calling and equipping his people as craftsmen to rebuild the temple. And certainly more than four craftsmen would be required, but the number four here is symbolic. It corresponds to the four horns. And even that number merely represents all the nations that surrounded Israel. And now understand what this vision is saying. For surely it is deeply counterintuitive. With the nations in their might at rest and God's people oppressed and discouraged, according to human logic, it would have made more sense to build up the walls of the city to train up the army, to forge weapons and armor, to train up war horses and chariots. And God says that the horns will not fall at the hands of armies, but at the hands of humble craftsmen. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But the next logical question is, how would such ordinary craftsmen terrify and cast down mighty nations and their armies? Actually, the answer to that question will be revealed in detail in our vision next week. Let me give you a brief preview this morning. Zechariah chapter 2 speaks of God's glory returning to Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple and God becoming a wall of fire all around her. Verse 5. God himself will then shake the nations and they will become plunder. Verse 5. How the craftsmen play a key role in all this by building the temple. But it is God's mighty power that actually accomplishes the overthrow of the nations. It makes us think of what the Lord says to Zerubbabel in chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So it's not by the might of the sword that the craftsmen terrify and cast down the the horns of the nations, but by building up the temple of God as they have been called to do. But would terrify the nations and cast them down is not an army of mighty warriors, but the glory of the one true living God dwelling in the midst of his people. What an encouragement this vision would have been to God's people in Zechariah's day. 
It must have strengthened the hands of the craftsmen to build the temple, knowing that by doing this work, they would actually overcome their enemies all around them. Now let's consider a few points of application for us today. First, I want to briefly reflect on the theme of horns in this passage and trace that theme forward in Scripture. And here we see the, thorn, the horns as a, a negative symbol as they represent here these ungodly nations. But horn imagery is not always negative in Scripture. After Hannah gives birth to her son Samuel, she praises the Lord saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And she goes on and says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 10. And this is the very thing we see concerning the anointed, our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. The other great Zechariah of Scripture, the father of John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, Luke 1, 68 and 69. And Jesus is that mighty horn, the horn of salvation who was first raised up in humiliation on the cross where he laid down his life for our salvation. But three days later, he was raised up again, raised up from the dead, and then raised far higher when he ascended to the highest heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. And so Jesus Christ is the horn of our salvation, who has been raised up, exalted above all things. And he will come again in glory on that final day, Not as he came the first time to lay down his life, but as we saw last week, he will come riding the white horse to conquer all his enemies and usher in that great day of final judgment. Jesus isn't only our Savior and King, he is also a great craftsman, a great temple builder. Perhaps it's no coincidence that before his ministry, he began his work as a simple carpenter. As we saw in our passage, Israel was called to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, this temple had not only been rebuilt, but it was also greatly beautified by King Herod the Great. And yet Jesus made clear that the time was soon coming when the temple in Jerusalem would no longer be of any spiritual significance. For Jesus was replacing that temple with the temple of his body. And the body of Christ is made up of the members of his church. Jesus is not only the chief cornerstone of the church, but he is also its chief architect and builder. As he said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As members of Christ's body, you are all stones in God's temple. As Peter writes 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.5. And so Jesus Christ is the great craftsman who is still building his church, his holy temple today. And yet we have to ask, how does Christ do that work? Well, he works through his people who are instruments in the hands of the master builder. And so the call to all of us today is to be at work building God's temple, his holy dwelling place, his church. So this language of building up Christ's body is found in several places in the New Testament. For example, we have in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Then just a few verses later, Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear, Ephesians 4, 29. Notably, both of these verses speak of building the church up through the way that we speak to one another, through speaking the truth in love, by encouraging one another with our words. But of course, speaking is only one way of building up the church. Any way you use the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you, any way that you use your gifts to serve the church is doing this work of building up God's holy temple. So then let us per- pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans fourteen nineteen. The call to you is to be humble craftsmen. Not building with wood and stone and metal, but building up Christ's church through the exercise of your spiritual gifts. But if you recall the context of Zechariah's vision, what does this all accomplish? What's the point? In Zechariah's day, God's glory was greatly magnified in his temple, and then he overthrew the four horns, the enemies of God's people. Should we expect the same today? Last week I reminded you of how Christ calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and to, this, and to see this dark world as the mission field in which we proclaim the gospel. So even though it is true there are still enemies of the gospel all around us, we respond to them with love and with the hope of their conversion. But there is also a sense in which, on the grand scale of history, the same plot line seen in Zechariah's vision will be followed again. For when the construction of Christ's New Testament temple is complete, all that remains is for Christ to return in glory on the final day. And that means the end. And with it, the destruction of all his enemies on Judgment Day. And so by serving as craftsmen in the noble yet humble work of building God's temple, you are working towards and hastening the day of his coming, that great and awesome day.
the work which we are called to do, to be craftsmen in God's house. It is a simple, it is a humble calling. And yet it is by this simple gospel work that God brings the dead to life. It is by this work that he transforms lives. And in the end, he will conquer kingdoms and renew and remake heaven and earth. You are simply called to be faithful, to use the gifts and the talents that he has entrusted to you. But just as temple building seemed a strange way to overcome in Zechariah's day, building up the church may seem a counterintuitive way to overcome the darkness around us, which sometimes appears to be so much stronger than we are, and even graining ground today. But God works in surprising ways. Looks can be deceiving. As Paul wrote, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. He could choose simple, humble craftsmen to overcome the might of armies and great powers. And so our trust is not in chariots and horses, not in strong walls or imposing towers, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for you are a mighty God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your holy prophets and most of all through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the horn of our salvation who has been lifted up and who is the great craftsman who is building the church, your holy temple. Would you help us in our calling in the great work of construction to be instruments in the hand of the master craftsman as we work to build up your holy temple. We long to see the nations streaming into your house, praising your name and giving you all glory. Help us to be faithful in this work, serving as your humble craftsmen, using the gifts you have given us, working with all our hearts for your glory. We pray in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.